Kia welcome to When Lambs Are Signed, the podcast, and you are here with Aaron and Dale. Great to be Hello. back, team. How you doing today, Dale, on a bright, cold, wet Auckland level four day? <laughs> bright? It's nighttime. <laughs> True. Well, it was bright. Yeah. <laughs> it was bright at one point. Now it's been good. Yep. Still just sitting in the house. Can't do anything for the next two weeks. <laughs> yeah. What about yourself? Full on, mate. Yeah, a lot happening for us in our space in the youth space during uh yeah during level four. So I'm sure at some point in the series we'll talk about it. Yeah, but, yeah, I guess you you do get to get up the house, right? <laughs> yeah, every day, every day, long days, a lot happening. I tell yeah. you, being a essential worker isn't all it's chalked up to be, guys. Maybe essential, but I am uh, very tired. <laughs> So, right, so what are we up to? What are we doing here? We're not here to talk about my fatigue problems. What are we up to, bro? What are we talking about at the moment? We got Lata from Voice. Fuck it on the way. What you got to talk to us about, Aaron? Yeah. Wow. We're, we're talking. So obviously, we're, we're doing this series around youth homelessness. So we're, we're talking about, you know, um, what that is and the many different pathways, pipelines and drivers of youth homelessness. Um, so yeah, today I had um, this awesome chat with Milata, who is just an amazing advocate um, for our rangatahi and our tamariki. Um, she works for Voice Whakarangamai. Voice's role is to be, I guess, a voice for our rangatahi to provide an opportunity for our young people to speak up um, in regards to their experiences within care and the system in Aotearoa and have a say in the systems and structures that are impacting them. So her team do a lot of advocacy work and supporting our young people to have their voices heard. So yeah, it's a really cool organization. Um, mm. She's doing some awesome mahi with her team there. Um, and she's going to talk a little bit about that today. Cool, cool. How right, should we get into it? Yeah. So there's one thing we do have to acknowledge here. Um, I did a thing. You did a thing? Yeah, I did a real dumb thing. Um, I may have forgotten to turn my microphone on for this conversation. Watch. So you can't hear you at all? Well, uh, you can kind of hear me. Yeah, you can hear me kind of all right. Um, and, and we've managed to edit it so you can't hear me. But there um, will be like just a little, you know, the quality of the sound when I speak will be a bit different. So, you know, I'll all never right. do that again. Sorry, team. Well, you're coming through real loud and clear now. So, oh, good. So that's good. good. Yeah. But I checked this about 20 times before you came on. That's why. So, oh, sure. Right, well, I suppose let's listen to the last then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll get into it. Kia and welcome to the Podcast. Awesome to have you with us today, mate. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Not too shabby. It's cold, but but we're ready. We're ready yeah. for this cold it off. So we're recording this in lockdown. I think it's now level it's four. I think we're in the second week of this now. We're coming into it. How are you doing? I know the mahi doesn't end. Um, both of us are still going. Like, how's things yeah. going for your rangatahi and your team in this time? Yeah, crazy busy, you know? Like, yeah, pretty interesting to see, like, all the non-essential workers have an opinion <laughs> about how essential workers should be. You know, that's been quite a, quite my highlight during this level four. COVID's hit South Auckland, so that's a bit scary for me um, and also scary for what that entails for my community as well. So keeping keeping on that quite quickly and just, yeah, having a little bit of a um, focus on that. But all is well, I guess. It just it doesn't stop, like you said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is eternal <laughs> hey so why don't you just to give us a quick introduction like who are you um and you know what's your role what do you do in this world yeah for sure um Malole. my name is uh simulata pope i am tonganiwan people just call me lata um hearty south aucklander i'm a youth worker by trade i think yeah people who work with young people rule the world uh it's, it's a skill set that no one else can do and everyone comes to us to fix everyone else's problems around people. So I'm, I'm really passionate be, about being um, a youth worker. I work at Voice, Voices of Young Care Experience, and that's the only state-mandated advocacy service for all children under the state care of New Zealand. So, yeah, very interesting six 
thousand kids, rangatahi, pepe, tamariki, atafai within Aotearoa. Um, and my job is just to amplify their voices all throughout their care journey. Sounds pretty easy. Simple, right? <laughs> like Simple. Well, so what got you yeah. into that? I mean, that's interesting, mahi, right? Like in you know, youth with you in general, like why are you doing this, mahi? It's hard, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, my dad is a youth worker and my mom is a social worker. <clears throat> and my, my family all throughout my, my whole life were a caregiving family for foster kids. So I guess for me, it was kind of already destined that I was going to find a job helping people. And then I looked to the side and my sister's like an educational psychologist. And then I looked to the other side and I have another sister who's in emergency housing for MSD. So um, yeah, obviously this is meant to be. Um, young people just really get my gears grinding. Yeah, for a whole bunch of my whole entire life, being young, brown and a woman has kind of defined some of the personal struggles that I've had, especially around having a voice. So for me, working at Voice is kind of, yeah, something that's quite rewarding to my whole whole life of battling, you know, just having a say or being at the, at the table of having a say. Um, and I'm really, really passionate about kids in care, especially those who come out of YG as well, and the whole pipeline of our young people going into youth justice and either ending up in the streets or ending up in prison. So, yeah, that's me. <coughs> and, I, and I think we will talk about both those uh, pipelines pretty soon. So, I mean, you know, we, in the series, we're talking about youth homelessness, and it's a massive topic. And, you know, we'll be discussing sort of different aspects of it. Like one of your advocacy and your mahi is around the care system, right? What, what do you see? What are you seeing in terms of youth homelessness and aurangatahi or coming through care? What's going on? Yeah, for sure. I definitely can say hand on heart that the state is failing young people who are on the streets particularly, especially those who have come from state care and have ended up facing, you know, rough sleeping or um, facing youth homelessness. I guess it's it's an early onset. You start seeing trends and patterns quite quite early on because no one wants to work with the two the kids that are too hard. You know, no one wants to work with the kids that always runs away. No one wants to work with the kids that are putting up a fight. And I guess for those in state care, you see that quite a lot because obviously these kids are uplifted from what they know is home. And what they know is their true core whānau, what they know was normal, and, and also their loved ones. So when we're looking at things like uplifting, just that term, already there's a huge connection of uplifting a child into homelessness, because you're literally taking away a kid from their home. I just don't understand how people can't make that connection sometimes. Um, and to me, that's the first early onset pivotal point where I see young people who are looked after by the state as their first experience of being removed from home and that goes into youth homelessness. I think also that there's this massive perception of young people who are on the streets that are care experienced being kids that are quite exploited, uh, kids that are often misunderstood, but within the care sector, they're the kids that were too hard to work with. They're the kids that were too naughty. They were the kids that you kind of just left on on the system until they turn 16, 18, or when they get out of state, not realizing that it was the state's responsibility to get to the true core of why they're acting the way they are. And that's something that we often miss um, when we're working with kids in state care. You kind of see these behaviors of absconding, of looking at home as home, of looking at professionals not being parents, and then you wonder why these kids are so far removed from the help that they need or the help that they seek to be. I often look at yeah, youth homelessness and the kids who do come on the street who are from the care sector is often guarded as well. And that, that, that goes to show that a lot of, you know, it's a lot of adults making decisions for their lives for early, from an early age. And so for me, I just see some of these trends being quite familiar. Like it just happens early. It's yeah. Like for me, the the earliest young person that I've seen that has been on the uh, that's faced rough sleeping has been about nine or ten, and he started just from absconding. And he started absconding from his group home. And the reason why he was put in a group home is because he was absconding from the caregivers. And the reason why he was absconding from the caregivers was because he just didn't want to be there. He wanted to be at home. He didn't understand why he was in care and no one was listening to him. So when we get down to the true core of why young people in the state feel so far removed from listening 
to the professionals in their lives, it's because we haven't took the time to listen to them about why they need a stable environment to feel loved, cared for, and also to feel like where they're staying has a home, if that kind of makes sense. You know, you talked about uplift and how like that is like really harmful. Like, how, What do you see in terms of how harmful is that sort of process um, of a young person being, I guess, torn from their home? Yeah, for sure. Like even in the languaging itself, when we look at, you know, when we look at the languaging within uplifts, we, we use words like we uplifted this child, we're removing this child from the home, um, we're taking away this child from the parents. So when you start looking at languaging around that, it really kind of entails that you're taking away somebody from their core caucus of home. <clears throat> and when you look about, you, when you look at it from a youth homelessness perspective, you just kind of connect the dots of obviously you're removing something from their home. So for me, I guess the biggest point that I always want to make around care experience, young people facing youth homelessness is that they already have felt that traumatic experience of being removed from home. Um, and that was actually under the state rather than under any other choice that they have made. It was the state's first responsibility to remove them from their houses and didn't replace them with the feeling of cratering to a new home for them. And so that's that very first traumatic experiences creates somewhat the early onset of that very first removal for young people. So when I look at kids in, in the care system who are consistently absconding, I already know that they come accustomed to the feeling of being removed. And there's no wonder because you look at languaging like uplifting, you look at them saying, I have no mum and dad, I'm, I'm running away to go back home, or I'm staying with strangers. It's no different than being on the streets, because you literally aren't staying at the place that you call home. So we talk about like young people being uplifted, and, and it's traumatic, and it's harmful to the child. Yet on the other side, you know, often when this is happening, the young person is at risk at home, or the tamariki, or the pepe is at risk at home already. So there's a traumatic experience and at times it's necessary to keep the child alive, right? How do we do this better? You know, is, is there a way to do it better? Is there a way to do it and, and minimize that trauma? Yeah, a lot of the young people that we've been working with um, at Voice often talk about the experiences of when they were first uplifted away from their homes. And one of the things that they always say is that they had no idea that they were getting uplifted at that moment that they were. So I guess one of the things that we can do straight away is that uh, we can start by communicating to our young people of what's happening, but also being transparent as to why they're in care. And I know that that's quite sensitive and it's also, um, yeah, from a practice lens, you know, most social workers or most professionals will say, you know, their children, the impact is quite traumatic for them to know what's going on at home. But we've had experiences of young people saying, I got in a car with two men in suits who came to my school, took me away, and I never saw my mom for two years, and I had no idea why. And every time I said, when I'm going to see my mom, they always just said, you're going to stay here for, for a bit longer, and then you stay here for a bit longer, and then you stay here for a bit longer. So when you look at that process, it's that part of their care journey that becomes traumatic. It's not the part that they're actually being physically removed away from their whanau, but it's what happens around the duty of care after they are being removed. And so for us, we often forget that while we're removing these young people away from their homes, that we are professionals, but for these rangatahis, for these pepes, for these tamariki, we are that point of contact of the first person that loves them after. So um, the first thing that we can do is actually be gentle, <laughs> actually be quite loving um, and not treat it as a job. And I think we always place this massive pressure on ourselves to be quite risk adverse, uh, to always look at the reports that we're doing and fulfilling the KPIs and the accountability that we're having. Um, rather than actually sitting and crying with the child, rather than sitting and hugging the child, rather than feeding the child, rather than walking alongside them and explaining to them as best that you can what's going on. Um, because young people aren't stupid and young people can see right through the BS. And we know that for a really long time being youth workers. And so, yeah, that's one of the biggest things that um, I would really encourage people to look at when they look at uplifts and removals. It's just... Be a bit more gentle. It's traumatic for everybody, um, especially the young person. 
mate, I think what you say there about needing to be gentle to love, you know, we talk a lot about needing to see behind the behavior, you know, like we've got a child who's been traumatized and then is acting out of that trauma and then we other them and almost mythologize them, right, and say, hey, you're just a, you know, you're just a brat or you're just trouble, you're this or you're that, but actually they're just like really hurting. Here a lot of this kōrero in the community and also in the sector um, around professionals, you know, I say that now, like, as a sector, we, we need to get better in this, which kind of puts the blame on the young person, right, and says, hey, you're running away, so it's your, you know, just, you should just accept that we've given you X, Y, or Z option, it doesn't work for you, you know, it's your, your fault, like, what do you sort of say to that, I mean, you, you, you're hearing these stories from our, on our tamariki and our rangatahi all the time, like, is that on? Yeah, no, it, it always frustrates me when we place kids in a too hard basket because I always challenge professionals to say if they were your own, you would run after that kid <laughs> all the time. No matter how many times your child, if that was physically your son's daughter um, who was absconding all the time, you would run a thousand times and a thousand times more. Why can't we do this when we place our kids under the state care and when we make that oath to work for the state why aren't we running a thousand times more and more and more? And so for me, I totally disagree with the fact that, yeah, that it's on our children. The behaviours are definitely difficult. I have had my fair share of young people swearing at me, not wanting to talk to me, flipping me off, walking away, having the tantrum, you know, putting me in some tricky situations. But that's where our skill sets as professionals come in. Our skill sets as professionals is not to analyze the behavior of young people and do nothing about it. It's to analyze the behavior of young people and to love heavy on them. And I guess that when we look at professionals and we look at youth workers who work with young people, you take an oath to serve young people, whatever shape, form, or size. And so there is no rule in the handbook to say give up on them when it's too hard for you. And there's also no rule in the handbook to say, if you're not okay, the children aren't okay. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think there's, there's a huge fine balance of how much you can go in terms of serving our young people, how far you can reach. But there's definitely, it's, yeah, it's definitely a myth that I want to debust big time, bust big time around the fact that young people's behaviors determine their life because we all should know <laughs> while we're working with these young people that that isn't the truth. And also wanting to be in reality of the young person. I think one of the biggest things that I always say when it's around youth homelessness and care experience young people is that they started off being high absconders. And so for professionals, no one wants to look after the young person that always runs away. But that's your duty at that point in time when they are running away to run after them. So if you're not running after them, who will? <clears throat> and if we're all not running after them, they will end up somewhere that we could have prevented um, and I'm really heavy on that so yeah hope that answers your question <laughs> yeah and I mean this has been in, in the media recently right young people not feeling safe or running away yeah well I guess when you look at child development and you look at youth development as well like no one wants to be locked up right <laughs> and especially no one wants to be locked up for a reason why um just because they're in care and you often find these high absconders running away because they are in care. You think about being nine years old, having to sleep with two total strangers in a hotel room just because I would definitely run away and I'll definitely run away to the place that I feel familiar with and that's home. Whether that was massively abusive, whether that was massively erratic, whether that was chaotic, if it saves me from sleeping with two random strangers who always have to come and check up on me, I mean, I would do that. So when you start looking at why young people are absconding, you think about the places we're putting them in, in hotel rooms, um, in locked, secure doors, um, having to only eat three times a day um, with the food they don't, don't, they don't choose as well. So, yeah, you look, I just compare it to how you would raise your kids or just compare it to how you would love and spoil your nieces and nephews. That's not what they're getting from the state. <laughs> that's not what they're. That's not the love and care that we're giving to these rangatahi. And um, when I see them absconding, it's always because of that. It's because something else is better on the other side than what they're facing right now. I think some people will be really shocked to hear that you've got nine-year-olds living in a motel and stay kids. You've seen a lot of that. Why is that coming? 
Yeah, I mean, um, uplifts don't stop just because there's a pandemic. <laughs> so when we look at um, level four and we look at COVID, you know, they're still removing babies away from whānau who seem to be still quite um, neglectful and, and obviously abusive. And, you know, for any reason that Wuranga Tamariki feel like they need to uplift babies, that's still happening. And also at the same time, we need to, it's a lockdown as well. So with nine and 10 year old babies, there's just not enough houses to cater. There's not enough placements. There's not enough certified caregivers. There's not enough approved whānau members to look after our babies. Um, and obviously chucking them in a motel with two trackers um, seems to be the most appropriate and the most efficient at the moment, yeah. If you're uplifting a child from their home and putting them in a motel, you're literally taking them into homelessness in the way that we talk about homelessness. It's not just living on the street. Um, Absolutely. You, you said you're also seeing our young people sort of living on the street at that young age of 9 and 10. I mean, we see the same. What's going on there and what can be done to ensure that young people maybe feel safer? You know, what are your tamariki, what are your rangatahi telling you? Um, how can we design a better system to ensure that actually when a young person does need to be um, brought away from their home for a time that they actually can feel safe where state puts them right like how do we how do we get that right yeah i think we need to get respite here right first when we look at um you know helping out our tamariki who just can't cope at home at the moment it's still a, a form of a quick temporary measure for the adult rather than the child we pick up the child and you give them to two strangers for about five days just so the parents can kind of have a rest who who are we doing justice and who are we loving on in that situation and that's not the young person so when I look at respite when I look at temporary caregiving when I look at transition plans especially when it comes from the state we what the key core that we often miss is the fact that we don't have enough caregivers and whānau placements that know how to cater to quite difficult behavior kids. We don't actually know how to love kids when they're being, you know, little brats, um, especially when they come from the state. And I guess when, um, when I look at the kids who are starting off on the streets a lot younger, one of the things that I really see that's really prominent is that they're around young people who are really like-minded. And so they're all surviving together. When you're in a room, in a house that you don't know one, and then you have adults who are constantly changing because they're on the shift work. Um, where's the sense of belonging in that? There's no sense of belonging. And so when I look at these kids on the street, they'd rather be with each other trying to survive out in the cold than be locked up with strangers. And I think when we look at the ones who are getting quite younger, um, they literally see that as a better option to run to rather than staying where they are. Yeah, once again, love um, is so important. And I think sometimes, again, you, and you've already highlighted it, like um, these things can become so clinical. We're actually dealing with human beings and human beings, little human beings who are really hurt. And, and what does actually bring healing? It's love, right? Love is the way. We, we talked a bit about the whānau, right? I mean, what's your whakaro on that? What role does the whānau have to play here? And are we doing enough to support whānau before an uplift is, is occurring? Yeah, I, I often, something at that we always talk about is that the, the need for an advocacy service for parents who have had their babies removed, because often we, are, we do miss the voice in the centre of everything, and we kind of pinpoint this negative, persuasive messaging that they're the ones who've done the most hurt, so they shouldn't have a say, or they're, by removing their kids, that we often forget that they loved them first, so uh, when I look at that and I hear that, I often look at, I often think of the saying, hurt people, hurt people, because we haven't actually quite gone down to the grassroots of why neglect and abuse happens in a whānau setting as much as we can in Aotearoa. Our stats in the care system has doubled. No one has actually touched upon um, preventative strategies from the government to face intergenerational trauma to have an Indigenous framework that actually gets down to the crux of healthy, living and breathing, thriving whānau. Uh, we've just tried it, uh, trialed a little bit of it around the whānau water stuff. But even then, you know, you have to have KPIs and reports to, to kind of fund things and then that gets all political. But no one has actually, no, uh, 
realize that intergenerational trauma hurt people hurt people quite simply um, in the fact that there's no healing after the traumatic experience of removing babies for parents and for the young person themselves um, once we get down to the crux of addressing that then we can prevent the future of what that looks like for the care system overall yeah i think that's huge and what would you like to see happen in that intervention yeah i would intervention space yeah for sure i would like the bureaucrats to, to, to have a realistic lens of how it is to serve people. And what that means for me is that I would love to see languaging like aroha, manakitanga, love, caring, duty of care within the accountability reports while they look at creating preventative strategies. I'd also like to see the care system have adequate professionals at the top as much as they are at the bottom. I'm sick of seeing the frontliners stay at the frontliners, <laughs> at, at the front line, and none of that skill set ever gets brought up right to the top. And so we still have the same decision makers making the same decision on assumption and not on the reality that they've gone out and done it. I'm sick of seeing Wellington as a national touch base that have no youth workers <laughs> within their system. And I'm sick of having the policy makers not have one ounce <laughs> of the reality of what it means to actually go and create a crisis care plan for a young person while they're the ones who make the decisions on how to do that from the top. That's what I would like to see happen. <laughs> Love it. So we've talked a bit about like the, the entry into here, how that's um, harmful for our rangatahi, how it's in our tamariki apiki and how it begins us on a journey which um, creates, I guess, a whole life, lifetime of transience um, and homelessness from the beginning of, of your life. Do you think we could, you could touch on a little bit about this whole um, transitioning out of care? You know, are our young people getting what they need to be able to transition out of care and be, you know, stable, supported housing? Yeah, definitely not. I, I, I don't think any young person is adequately set up for life once they age out of care, unless they actually have a loving, trusted adult around them throughout their whole period of when they do age out of care. And what we're finding, particularly when I'm seeing it at work, is this massive pressure of I'm turning 18 tomorrow, um, my social worker is just sending me all of this stuff now. I've got six months to work all of these entitlements or to say that I've got issues or just to highlight all the things that I need before I do age out of care. And I think that that's a huge gap in the system where you literally, there is a literal sense of young people aging out of care, feeling like they're getting dropped off once they turn 21. Um, and that's because there's no setup. And I think of like our personal families and how much we grow. Like I still stay at home. So, I mean, young people who've aged out of care don't ever get to go back home once they turn a certain age. And I can go back home whenever I want. So obviously, you know, it's one systematic flaw that's defining this whole massive process of care for these rangatahi, which is quite concerning for me. Um, not only to do with homelessness as well, like they literally do leave with nothing, some of them. And the biggest concern that I have with that is young people also within the care system aren't aware of what they're entitled to and aren't aware of some of the things that, that happens once they make the option, uh, once they, they say yes to age out of care or once they say, yes, I want to leave care. And so you lose a massive amount of support once you do tick the box saying, yep, yeah, I'm going. And there's a lot of animosity for young people to say, I never want to hear from OT again, so I'm out. But sometimes what they don't realize is that when they say I'm out, they leave with a whole heap of underutilized supports that could have prevented them to succeed or they, they could have um, helped the pipeline of them thriving and after aging out of care a bit better as well. So that's that's definitely a systematic gap that we're seeing on our end. Yeah. And how many young people are aging out of care, I mean, every year and how many, so, so we know there are some supported housing um, accommodation and they're getting kind of rolled out across the country. Is it enough? Yeah, I think, I think we're at the 500 and something mark of um, 17 year olds up at the moment that's aging out of care. But also 
the only thing that we heavily rely on is the TTA and TCI space within Oranga Tamariki to help them through that. And even then, these complexities of whether or not there's enough capacity for young people to get a transitional worker, and also whether or not they fit the criteria. So we're having two mixed messages at the moment where um, the state is saying, hey, once you turn 15, let's start getting this plan around. You know, we'd really like to help you set up for when you age out of care versus the reality of some of these cases where they just there's no capacity. I haven't heard from my TTA worker. I haven't been allocated one. I don't fit the criteria and my birthday's tomorrow. So we're actually seeing two different mixed messages that we're trying to work through. And at the same time, there isn't a clear support avenue for young people to age out of care holistically. So you have the ones within the state, you have the ones within NGO, but there's also this massive scary thing of having no parents after you turn 21 that no one has touched upon as well. So um, yeah, that's something that we're, we're trying to look at at the moment. And can you just, for those who um, aren't aware, can you just explain what the TTA, TTA is and do they have housing? You know, what's going on there? Yeah, TTA, so transitions into adulthood and TCI are transition from care to independence. Um, from, from what it sounds like, I don't actually know if there's actual um, specific TTA and TCI housing, unless you're in through specific 396 contracts, but there isn't a massive wide range of housing for young people who are aging out of care, unless you are already attached to a TCI service from the sounds of it at the moment. Yeah, and I guess just to fill in there, like the, the housing services are the supported living programs, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, various organisations run, but often at capacity uh, and often not enough for the need. Yeah. There's another uh, side to this as well, like we've talked about the care system, but what about youth justice? You know, how do these two, you know, the care system is a, we've talked about often as being a pipeline into homelessness, but what do you see in that space? Yeah, for sure. I see a premeditated life decision of young people. As soon as they walk through those doors in the residence, they kind of really know what the future holds for them. And that's either in the streets or either in prison. And that's quite that's quite big to say. <laughs> um, but I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that there is a very rare number of young people who aren't affiliated in youth justice that has, haven't gone through the dilemma of I'm either going to go down this road, which is quite heavy, or I'm going to go down another path to help myself. And when they had chosen the path to help themselves, it was 10 times harder than the road that they were set up to be. And so for me, I uh, look at trends like the Raman boys who come out with no bail addresses, already being an immediate pipeline into youth homelessness. And then I also look at the crime trends and patterns as well, that these young people don't have adequate transitional placements where they come out from the exposure and exploitation of the community. Like all they know is how to survive day to day in the way that they do. So when they're out here, they would rather commit more crime to get back to the place that gives them more structure. And so when I look at youth justice, I see those two particular areas being, yeah, being the biggest concern for me, pipeline into prison and pipeline into youth homelessness. And it's always around their transition. We aren't transitioning our young people from youth justice as, yeah, we're we're not doing it justice. (laughs) Well, it can be better. It's a blanketed issue of many certain things, including bureaucratic politics. No one wants to touch youth justice in a sense as well, because, hey, who wants to work with the young criminals? Who wants to work with the 12-year-old murderer? You know, it's almost that kind of icky feeling around that sector. But also you find these clashes around state care versus corrections as well. So who actually punishes the young people for the crimes that they do? rather than understanding the the behavior of why they did what they did at that particular age. So we often miss that conversation, especially when we're looking at youth justice. No one from the care sector also is in those spaces to challenge some of the correction lenses um, when we're looking at youth justice as well. So yeah, you definitely see that. And then 
nine times out of 10, you will always face the institutionalization of our young people while they're in their residence. It is crazy how, yeah, non-prison that we don't, that we make around our residences, that end up being prison-like. And so for me, yeah, we, we miss that. We miss love, we miss aroha, we miss caring. You look at that place, you just think risk adverse, risk, 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 restraints, defense, defense, defense. You look at the languaging they're using, uh, you look at the reports they're writing up, and yeah, to me, you already know that that young person's already destined to fail uh, once they, they go into those doors. What are you thinking the system needs to do? Like, what's the responsibility of the state in that transition? Yeah, for sure. I I feel like um, the responsibility of the state is to have more care lens professionals within the residences. I feel like there needs to be a good hard conversations between corrections versus care state amongst themselves and experience. And I also think that all the, um, the staff, at least the frontline staff, the youth workers need adequate youth development training. A lot of them are, are already placed in a box to kind of get trained as a person to do restraints. Meanwhile, the core fundamental rights and the core fundamental principles of youth development is to not even force anything upon any young person. So that at the core crux of it could change a whole lot in that sector. Kia ora. Yeah, youth workers at the forefront of some of this mahi, I think, is really yeah. important. And alongside that, um, our rangatahi voices, right? Boy, For sure. Got the pun. Sure. Um, I had to get it in there. So, like, <laughs> on that segue, you know, thinking about our young people and having a voice, you know, you said this at the beginning, you know, yourself as a young wahine, um, brown rangatahi, getting a voice at the table, how important that was and how challenging it was. Like, one, like, how challenging is it for a harangatai coming through state care? And, and, and two, what does it actually mean for a young person to have a voice? And there's also, like, a shadow, like, I, I sure. think, in the youth development sector around, like, youth participation, which actually ends up just being code word for youth exploitation, right? Where we just sure. kind of use yep. the young person rather than actually, like, yep. honouring them um, and doing yep. it in a safe way. So, like, how do we do this in a safe way that gives our rangatahi voice and allows them to speak into these spaces? I think we have to first start by giving opportunity. Like there's no point of speaking for young people if we don't know any young people. <laughs> and there's no point in speaking about young people if you don't if you don't have young people on speed dial to keep you in check. <laughs> I am sick of professionals talking about children when they don't know an ounce of what it feels like to look after a child. And so first off, you have to give opportunity for young people to reach the same um, platforms as you. I think also when we're looking at that, we have to check out privilege as well and what that means within our voice. You know, being an adult, that shows a lot to a young person around your voice because your, your, your voice as an adult overpowers everything else, obviously, if you're talking to a child. So we definitely have to look at some of those ways where we bring our privilege into um, amplifying the voices of our young people. One of the things that I really like where I work is that our CE just sits to the side and just have young people talk all the time <clears throat> because no one came to listen to the adult everyone came to listen to the young person and I think when we do that and to do that delicately we have to wholeheartedly be ready to hear the challenges that young people bring uh, no adult is ever ready to actually hear what a rangatahi actually has to say <laughs> but if you do and if you open that and you open that with loving and caring arms, then you know that the message is clear and genuine. And so for me, um, the importance of having a voice is just to recognize the value. It is so, yeah, I just dumbfounds me sometimes that people don't actually realize that it is 20 times harder for a young person in particular situations like being you know, from the state or care experience or facing youth homelessness to get to the same tables as other young people. And so for voice, you need to actually be able to find value in that struggle story, in, in those particular processes, in the way that you create opportunities, because no one can ever take your truth away. Um, and no one can ever, ever tell you what you went through is something that is lesser than somebody else. And I guess I always encourage young people, particularly around the care space and especially around those who are rough sleeping, 
to feel confident in the way that their story isn't in vain, but also us as professionals and us as adults to be able to delicately use that in a manner that's man enhancing and not scapegoating. And you can listen to young people have a voice without having to publicize it as well. <laughs> you can actually genuinely sit down and listen to a young person and that validates their voice. So there's all these different ways that we don't think <laughs> that without love um, is going to change the world pretty much. Yeah. Love is the way, sister. <laughs> it is always. always. <laughs> You know, so we'll start to wrap this up, but I guess just at the end, you know, you're part of Manaki Rangatahi, you're working towards ending youth homelessness in Aotearoa and, you know, a future where we can all, you know, which we hope to attain, where none of our tamariki, none of our rangatahi ever have to experience homelessness. What, what for you, you know, just as we're closing, like, what would you like to share with people? One, like, why are you in this space? Why is this so important? Why do we need to do this? What would you maybe encourage people in, you know, their local communities? What would you like to see them doing to contribute in this space? Yeah, for sure. I'm going to share two personal stories. My dad was an orphan at 16. He lost his dad at four. He lost his mum at 16. And then he kind of had to grow up in the islands, uh, fending for himself and fending for his siblings. And what that looked like was no calls. Uh, definitely no money, no job, but literally being misplaced in a village where there was so much judgment and a lot of assumptions on how he is as an adult while he was growing up. When in reality, all he thought about every day was how is he, how is he going to feed his brothers and how are they going to stay warm tonight? That, taking that story and also another story where my grandparents were wrongfully incarcerated during the dawn raids, um, I think of the policeman who didn't remove himself from the room when my nana got changed and how much the state owed my family a personal responsibility to say, I am so sorry, that was effed up. When I think of those two stories and I think of Manaki Rangatahi, it is everyone's responsibility to feel that hurt that every single young person on the street who faces rough sleeping, who sleeps in an overcrowded house, who sleeps at night not thinking about um, thinking about where they're going to be tomorrow, thinking about how they're going to eat tomorrow, thinking about who are these strangers that have to make these decisions for my life. It is our responsibility to to feel that same suffering, that same pain. And if we don't like it, then it is our duty and our responsibility to do something about it because it is it is our innate human nature, but also us as people. Like, I, you can't sleep at night being a proud Kiwi if you know that there's 19,000 kids on the street. <laughs> you can't clap, you know, at the end of the day, doing a hard day's yaka if there's 19,000 kids on the street. <laughs> And you can't have a warm cup of tea and choose anything that you want to eat from your pantry if there's 19,000 kids on the street. And then you also can't look to the person next to you and not offer what you can offer because you can without realizing that there's adults here who are trying to fight for the same resources for the 19,000 kids on the street. What can people do? Definitely. Join the petitions, create some uh, social awareness as well. I think the more we talk about it, the more it becomes a thing that we talk about. I would also encourage people to start actually realizing the power of social services and the power of community networking. Um, Even if you're not a professional and have no idea of where to start, the power of offering what you can do to your local is, is 10 times more better than sitting at home figuring out what to do. And I think there's already quite a, there's already quite some reputational names out there as well to get in touch. You know, this youth homelessness is a Google away <laughs> um, to get to do something about it as well. And then also to never underestimate the power of grassroots community movements. Manaki Rangatahi is something that is taken off from the ground for young people, alongside young people and with young people. So we have to realize that um, we all are whole collective group of a bunch of strangers who have the same collective kaupapa to end youth homelessness, uh, you can be the extra stranger too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. Hey, thank you so much, Mata. Um, look, I always really appreciate your pedal, um and I love working with you, so I appreciate your um, yeah, your time tonight. I know you've done 
had a crazy day, um, you know, serving our community and to spend some That's time with me. That's all good. Tonight. Appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, then. <laughs> yes, you too. Bye. Wow, welcome back, team. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. I really enjoyed um, having that chat with Lata. Yeah, got a lot of respect for her and um, love the mahi that she's doing. But um, Dale, this is, yeah, like for me, this is like every day corridor that we have. Um, how was that for you, like listening to some of that stuff? Um, was there anything sort of shocking or challenging or were you like, yeah, what are your reflections coming out of that conversation? Yeah, uh, not, not shocking. I think most people have a slight idea. Yes, so what a lot of these kids go through. Um, that have sort of going to stake here but it's when you really really think about it you know it can be quite challenging because man i can't imagine how i would have handled it as a as a teenager and we just talking about you know kids just getting picked up by two random strangers you know you always think that the child knows why they're being picked up or understands why well you just think it well like it's the right decision but oh i was just trying to put my, myself in the child's shoes just two random people just showing up taking away from a home no matter what sort of going on you know you're still attached to your parents and you still have your family maybe you have siblings or something and then just being taken from that completely be very scary <laughs> mm. yeah i imagine can only imagine right like yeah and as a child not really understanding why and i, I don't know what i have for it is traumatic so what you're saying a high percentage of them end up on the street yeah i mean I mean, we do know that a high percentage of rangatai that experience homelessness came through state care. Right. right. Yeah. So it is like one of those pipelines that we see young people coming from the care system into homelessness through that channel. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like from our experience, from what I see anyway, is young people that I guess they, they come into state care and that's the beginning of a journey of homelessness, right? So they get uplifted from home. They, you know, are then bouncing around like care and foster homes and all like often like because they've been so harmed by what's happened in their life and then the trauma the trauma of being uplifted as well like is another thing and then that comes out in behavior and then like people who are really trying to be good people and like be caregivers like uh struggle with those behaviors and mm. then say hey sorry i can't keep you in my home anymore ask them to move on or they get abused in care and they have to move and so there's this constant moving um and then they become teenagers and they've like basically just been homeless their whole lives since they got uplifted and end up on our streets yeah yeah must be hard as i was trying to find i guess the right people to take care of these of these kids I have like she was mentioning it's hard to find people with the right skills but man because i guess you <laughs> you probably have a small pool anyways and then from that pool having the people that can take care of someone that's going through a lot was exhibiting difficult behavior because of what they've gone through yeah i mean it's challenging it's not you know it's not my work so the foster care um side of it but from what i hear from my colleagues that work in that space recruiting good quality people is difficult and i mean it's hard work right you bring someone into your home and, and often like these that i have been so harmed you know there's a lot of pain and hurt and that, that brings with it a lot of complexity that needs to be supported and, and a lot of healing that has to happen hmm. Do you know much of the process that the child goes through um, once they once they sort of get taken into state care? What do you mean by like that? In terms of them, sort of, do they have any choice about where they go, or were they just kind of taken from taken from their home, taken to a, a different place, and just sort of made to fit in there? I guess it's way more complicated than what we can discuss right here, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's something though that Lata highlighted is that a lot of the you know the tamariki and rangatahi that they speak to say they never felt like they had any voice in that whole experience that they were just taken away from the family they didn't understand what was going on and then they just kept getting moved around and they didn't really feel like they had a choice in that right um, or had a, had a voice to be able to speak into the hmm. to the decisions that were being made for them, which is an understandable why they run away. Yeah, I think it's a big thing, especially for like um, like a challenge, I think, for professionals like in, in these spaces is like thinking about sometimes you think you know what's right and maybe you do have like decisions that are, yeah, yeah, this is going to be the best per thing for this person that I'm serving. But if you don't actually involve that person in the decision-making process and if that person, you know, whether they're a young person or an adult, like we all want to have some sort of autonomy over our own lives. Like what if I just came into your life and started making huge decisions? You're going to move tonight, 
and go stay with someone else and you know mm. like or you can't see this person anymore you can't do this like how would you feel about that as an adult right yeah. like obviously these are complex things but just there's there's power in like allowing people to have a voice and at least being able to speak into the situation and they may not be able to make all those decisions because of the complexity but they should at least be at the table yeah yeah so they get to with through voice that they get to at least build a relationship with someone and yeah i think voice that like one of the things that lata once described voice to me as was sort of like a union for care experience young people right Hmm. so voice is that place where if you know young people in the care system are having challenges and issues and aren't feeling heard they can go and they can get support to have those issues raised at a higher level yeah yeah hmm. so do you guys quite often get to work together trying to house how someone that's gone through stay care yeah i mean we're still we're still um because we i guess our side is really like the housing piece and supporting young people in housing and um yeah you know, so yeah, Lata and I both work together in the collective in Manakarangatahi. Um, so we work quite closely there. Um, mm. And we're working around how we can work more closely to, to better support one another in our work as well. So yeah, bit of an ongoing work there, I think, to join the dots. Something I, <laughs> I was thinking of. And you always feel bad when you when you think about money in this case, because you feel like our life is always worth money. But I guess that it always comes down to that, right? Because some of you saying, you know, it's good you know you need to give them time and love you know love is time you're gonna pay someone for the time you know <laughs> i was just just being real you know being realistic in this and so do you guys find it difficult to get the funding for this type of thing the support as well yeah to get the support that the that this young person needs you know someone who can journey with them through whatever they're going through yeah i mean like there's there's it really depends on like what the young person is needing, but yeah, I would never say there's enough, right? Like all mm. the services I know that are working in these spaces are often working like, you know, doing more work than they're being supported and funded to do, right? Because the need is so huge, right? That's the same mm. in my service. I'm sure that's the same with, with Lata and others, like often are having to work really hard just to like make ends meet and to support the huge need that's out there, which often doesn't mean you always have as much time to do the best quality work that you can. But I think one of the things she said there about like love being the thing that heals was something that really resonated with me. Like at the end of the day, that is the thing that brings healing, right? It's as us as human beings coming into the space, choosing to love our young people and not walking away from that. Like I see that as a hugely transformational and I've seen it transform people over and over again, young people that have been so harmed and and hurt by the world and by adults and, and just don't have any trust. But then, you know, like, youth workers who are just like nah we're going to love you regardless and keep turning up and you see that healing happen and to be honest you can't pay people enough to do that right like and as professionals sometimes in these spaces you forget that that's your job right like we're here to love these kids not judge them not say oh you know you've done this so i'm not gonna support you anymore like mm. we're in this weird position we're actually paid to love people right and if we're not willing to do that sometimes i wonder if we're in the right job right because then the day if we don't actually care for these guys and if we don't actually love them if we're not willing to like walk with them through some of this really hard stuff and through their recovery and healing journeys then we're just like collecting a paycheck yeah that's a hard thing though because sometimes it's, that's the case right everyone's trying to make a living do you find it hard to get people into the roles and all the right people as well yeah i mean it's hard work it's hard work so yeah it, it can be hard finding the right people but there's some amazing youth workers out there around yeah, the country yeah. doing some amazing work you know which is important and awesome so yeah mm. it can be hard to find and train the right people but there's some good ones when you find them yeah yeah you can see a lot of selflessness a lot of the time i'm quite curious to know what it's like for because you mentioned that they don't get much support in that in that transition out of care mm. you know once they reach 18 or maybe they do but it's not concise and not it's not enough quite often i can i can just think about the support you know the average person has from their family particularly these days going through and then you know for someone to get whatever little care they're getting maybe as they're going through state care and then it's just kind of cut off at 18 and having no one so is there is there anything i mean there's you guys helping the um with the housing and then um lots of but is anyone for the people once it's an 18 i can't remember if she mentioned anything yeah so there the, there has begun to be um 
you know, legislation has changed so that um, when young people leave care at 18, they're still to receive support at least until they're 21 and they can still go back for advice and support up to 25. So, you know, that's positive. As part of that, they also have the service, which is like transition service, which which is youth workers that sort of step into that role of social the social workers had and are providing a bit of support dependent on the young person's needs, right? Um, and can still support them up to the age of 21, which is really great. And then you have like programs like the ones we run, which is like supported housing, where, you know, they get support and housing and youth workers that wrap around them. Now, the challenge really is that the need outweighs what we have, right? Like, so in the housing space, we are getting referrals all the time and we just don't have enough housing to house all the young people who need housing and need that support who may have been experiencing homelessness like in care and then being transitioned out and now they need stable housing you know they needed it before but it's just not there and so yeah those those are some of the challenges is that yeah the the transition stuff's really good it's a step in the right direction but i guess it needs to continue to grow to meet the needs of all of our rangatahi that are coming through care yeah and that's one yeah. of the things that like Manakadangate has been fighting for and LifeWise and you know myself like we in Lata and you know like one of the things we're really like fighting for is like legislation that like prevents any young person being released um, from a state system into homelessness and that that still happens right you know like I know yeah. young people that have been in care have been experiencing homelessness and then get released and they go straight into they continue to be in homelessness right and there's no Mm. real intervention there right so you know we believe that that needs to change and that state agencies need to have responsibility before they release young people from their care to actually ensure that they're housed and stable and got the supports they need yeah because i mean even if if you are housed without the correct support you end up on the streets one thing i wanted to ask was how long do you feel it takes when a young person is experiencing homelessness when it becomes difficult for them to sort of come out and transition to i guess the, for lack of a better word normal way of life you know pay rent pay bills do all these kind of things which can be quite overwhelming i imagine for you know someone who hasn't had to deal with it i mean it is for most people in anyways you know sometimes people are just keeping up with it the best of times um, i can't imagine what it's like for someone who's coming from the streets where you know it almost feels like overwhelming and it's easier for you to just then be on the streets because you don't have all these things hopping at you all the time all these things you have to take care of how long do you reckon it is that you have before someone it becomes really difficult for them to transition yeah i mean bro it's that's that's really individual right it's really depending on people the thing is homelessness is traumatic and it, it is harmful and the reason people end up experiencing homelessness is because they often have experienced another form of trauma or multiple forms of trauma in, in their life, right? So you take people who have been traumatized and harmed, and then they go and have this other experience on top of that where they're getting traumatized and harmed. And then the question really becomes, how long do people take to heal? I mean, that's an individual journey. Recovery and healing is individual for us, but you can't heal if you're not got stable housing like one of the things i say often is housing is healing right like if you have a home and you have you know people that love you and care about you who are you know checking up on you and are there with you and walking with you through the hard stuff then healing is possible right but Hmm. until you have some form of safety and stability if you're still being harmed it's going to be really hard to recover it's going to be really hard to heal through that so yeah, I think for me, the priority is around putting the safety in place, like making sure that young people have a safe place, that they've got people that love them, who care about them and continue to check up on them. And sometimes that means it's uh, to start, that's us as professionals, right? We're the people that love them and care about them and keep turning up for them. And eventually, you know, we as youth development workers, like our whole goal is to connect them to people who can do that for them and continue to be involved in their life. So yeah, it's a journey, like, but we do know that if you intervene early, it, it it is much quicker right you know like our experience in our service like is that like we can see young people who have maybe like had that really rough experience sleeping rough and you know maybe it takes three years but like eventually like they've come through like so much healing that they're doing really well um so yeah it's it's really dependent on the young person i'd say yeah right yeah i think a lot of what she said mainly it's just things you know but don't really think about it because you have the luxury of not thinking about it but it is challenging it made me think a lot about what you say of you know get these get these kids now before you're having to be the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff rather stop stop them reaching the cliff in the first place 
yeah one of, one of the things that like i think that um lata said which really resonates with me again is this there's this huge stigma put on young people who've come through care around um you know when they run away this this word absconders which gets thrown around you know these kids absconded from the state facility what is it mm. boys home or whatever it is and there's always this attitude that you know the young person's homeless because it's their fault they shouldn't have run away but you know like i think what she really like highlighted was that these young people often yeah they're really traumatized, they're really harmed like they don't see their place as their home maybe they don't feel safe there there's a reason why they're running away that's it that's for me the thing right like why are these you know why is it that we have these children that are in the care of the state and they don't feel safe where they are yeah you know the state's meant to be their parent but they don't feel safe with the state you know like that's that's something that i think adults need to own you know that that's something that i think professionals need to own governments need to own not children you know that because sometimes we put all the pressure on the child to say like we created the system for you. Why don't you stick around? Why don't you like it? I mean, maybe we should ask that question hmm. um, because they're obviously voting with their feet, you know? And I tell you, when I speak to young people who've gone through some of the system, they say that, Hey, nah, we didn't feel cared about. We didn't feel loved. We didn't feel safe. We felt like prisoners, you know, like we feel like we're criminals, like, hmm. okay. So like, maybe there's something that we need to do to change the systems that we have in order to ensure that our young people, when we do have to take them out of their homes for whatever reason, that, yeah, we do everything we can to prevent that, but when we do, that they actually feel safe and they feel cared about and they get their basic human needs met. Yeah, it's really handy having more people who have worked in this to be the ones making, you know, decisions, making, creating these, um, I guess, the systems used by the government. Yeah, I mean, either that or the right people in government willing to listen, right? Like, if you have uh, bureaucrats and politicians that are willing to listen to, you know, young people and to people mm. working with young people, then you can have a huge shift in what's going on. So I guess it's that posture, right? Are we listening to the people that our systems affect? Are we allowing those people to be involved in the design of... And I think we talked about this in one of the previous episodes in the series already like you know like it's important that any system or service that's designed for a particular group of people that those people are there at the table designing it because yeah, it's right. for them and if they're not there then you run the risk of designing a system that works for you and your world but um actually you're never going to have to benefit from the system so you know yeah i think might not i think we're talking about that about that when we're talking about the treaty yeah yeah right and, and like uh tatidity, right and yeah. um making sure that things are actually truly bicultural yeah yeah did you have any other uh, sort of like reflections on all that bro um, uh, uh, nothing else what about yourself yeah i mean i guess like and i said already the, the one thing if i'm taking one thing away from it it was a reminder that once again you know this is a real like human game you know that actually really the the core of this is that it's children who have been hurt right and and those children grow up and one of the things i think is the greatest hypocrisy in this country is that we have so much compassion for children who get abused right like whenever it happens and we should yeah but what we forget about is that those children become adults or they become first they become teenagers then they become adults and when we see you know the kids on the street and we see you know young people getting into you know whatever happens in, in life like we're so quick to ridicule and to say you know lock them up throw away the key all that sort of stuff that all the old rhetoric comes out but these teenagers that you see that you're judging throwing stones at that you want to have incarcerated for the rest of their lives they are the kids that were harmed and then let down by the state and not cared for and didn't have the opportunity to heal and this is the result of that right and so I think as a country, we've got to do better for our kids. Uh, you know, we've got to make sure that, hey, we do everything we can to prevent children from being uplifted, you know, because actually, you know, whānau want to look after their children. <laughs> no one sets out to be a bad parent. No one sets out to hurt their kids. Like, I, I mean, whānau all the time who had their kids uplifted and they love their kids so much, right? And I asked myself, what could we have done to actually help this whānau to heal so that this didn't happen before it got to this point? Because as soon as you take a child away from a family that that is so harmful not just to the child but to everyone 
And there's so much more we can do to actually prevent that from happening, to actually making sure that our whanau are healed and recovering and that they get the supports that they need so we don't get to those spaces. But then when we do, and, and if it does get to that point where actually a child needs to be taken away from their family, that it's done in the absolute best way possible, if that's you know possible so that our young people are actually you know, are cared for and loved. And I think that's the key that Lata said over and over again is that love is the thing that brings healing. You know, like we say often, I say often, love is the way, right? And and love is what actually truly brings transformation. And so like the challenge for me and the reminder is, hey, like this work is not just about collecting a paycheck. It's not just about turning up in a space. It's about loving the kids that we serve, loving the young people that we're there for. And this is something I think all of us can be a part of, right? We're all connecting with people in our communities in different spaces. And if we remember that actually love's the thing that's going to bring change in our world, not sort of throwing stones at someone who looks a bit different from you, not just judging that teen and teen who maybe you think's been a bit of a, a nuisance in your community, like recognize mm-hmm. actually people need to be loved. And that's the thing that's going to bring us together and bring transformation in the end. Yeah. So I went on a bit of a ramble there. Didn't I? No. no. <laughs> that's good, man. Cool. I think they've probably had enough of us now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the coffee's cold, right? Got to go. Yeah. Yeah. We heat it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I don't even have coffee this time because of yeah. lockdown. My coffee hasn't come through. So I'm drinking tea. <laughs> yeah. And it's really cold. It's like frozen. Anyway, when we start to talk about our drinks, you know, the, the, the cast is over. So, hey, thanks for joining us today. It was really good to have um, this quarter. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Lada. And that's us. We will see you next week. Cool. Laters. Just a little, do a little, call it what they want, I call it enough. You've been listening to Win Lambs of Silent, the podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you are listening, and join the conversation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The music from this podcast is from the album Dissonance by Jess Jackson and Leon Shelley. Listen to more from these artists on Spotify.